Have you ever gotten in trouble for something and really had no idea why you were being punished? Just think back to your childhood. You ever get in trouble for something and you go, I have no idea why I'm getting punished. I can actually, I can honestly tell you without equivocation, I've never had this experience. And that does tell you a bit about the child that I was and the kind of parents I had. I had wonderful parents. And they never, to my recollection, I can never remember them punishing me for something that like, man, there's just no reason for this punishment. No, I mean, I was like a really difficult kid. And when I got punished, it was because I'd actually done things wrong. Now, despite that, I will say this about my parents, who I love and admire. Though they never punished me unjustly, one of the hallmarks, especially of my dad, who I'm very close with, my dad's parenting, is uh, something that I, as a, uh, as a kid, named Tales of the Unbalanced Response. Tales of the Unbalanced Response was a little phrase I came up with as a kid to describe my dad's form of parenting. Now, again, I love my dad, absolutely phenomenal man, phenomenal provider, incredible example, especially for a man who doesn't love and worship Jesus. I mean, just incredible. But he was the master of tales of the unbalanced response. You do something and you think, man, I'm going to get it. Nothing. Then you do something and you think, oh, this is no big deal. You know, boom, the dude would just go like ballistic on you. Perfect example, 11 years old, first time I ever got suspended from school for fighting, which was incredible that I had made it that long. But anyway, I'm 11 years old. I get suspended from school for fighting. My dad, I'm that day riding in the car with him, and I'm just thinking, oh, my life is over. He didn't punish me at all. He asks me two questions. Why'd you get in a fight? Second one, how'd it go for you? And then that was it. Like, no punishment, nothing. And then like a week later, I, I left, and this is, my wife will tell you, this is still a struggle of mine. I left a dish on the sink, grounded for two weeks. And it was just tales of the unbalanced response. This is a hallmark of my dad's parenting. And it still marks his life. I told some of you about this story. Recently, I was in North Idaho visiting my parents, and my dad lives like the most chill life of any human being I know. He's retired, and he has a pension. That's a P word people in my age group don't know, but it's this thing where they keep paying you for work that you've done in the past. It's incredible. So anyway, we're hanging out at his house, and my dad has this chair that he sits in, and he loves it. And my mom comes in from running some errands, and And she goes, Dennis, can you uh, call this restaurant down the street to get some reservations? And my dad just gets all ticked off. He's like, why is she? And my mom leaves the room before he gets upset because he's a little afraid of her. And so she leaves the room and he looks at me and she goes, why does she have to do that? I'm like, do what? And he goes, can't she see I'm sitting in my chair? You know, and he's just, it's tales of the unbalanced response. He's just so upset. Now, the reason I bring up my dad's penchant for tales of the unbalanced response is because where we're going to start things in 1 Samuel this morning, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you are going to see something that seems like it is a classic tales of the unbalanced response. What happens in 1 Samuel 8 is that the elders, the leaders of God's covenant chosen people, Israel, ask Samuel the prophet judge, and by way of that, God, for a king. They ask for a king. 
And both Samuel and God's respond. They respond with such disdain that you just think this seems like tales of the unbalanced response. And the reason I say it seems like tales of the unbalanced response is because if you've read the Old Testament up to 1 Samuel, you would think their request for a king is actually a great thing. It's actually something that has been promised. I mean, kingship is a central theme throughout First and Second Samuel, but all throughout the Old Testament leading up to this point, they've been promised that a king is coming. And so then they asked for it. They're actually even promised, I'll get into this in a moment, God promises that they will ask for a king. And so then they ask for a king, and Samuel's furious, and God takes it even further, which will get into, and it just seems like tales of the unbalanced response. What is going on? And really, to appreciate it, you've got to back up to the beginning of the Bible and see how kingship really is there from the beginning. So, for example, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity in his image, after his likeness. And in Genesis 1, 27 to 30, what God says to them is he says, okay, now you're created, you're one flesh, this whole bit. And he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. But then after that, he says that he's given them dominion over all of the earth. You know what he's telling them right from the beginning? You're royalty. God creates Adam and Eve, in a sense, as king and queen over the earth. They're his vice regents on this planet. Kingship gets a really positive start. Now, then there's the fall into sin. And then in Genesis chapter 3, though, you get this promise that God gives to Eve that her offspring is going to be like a warrior king who's going to crush the head of this ancient serpent. So already you start to see, okay, well, the king thing seems pretty positive, but then it gets explicit in Genesis chapter 17. So you got Adam and Eve, the fall into sin, and then you guys remember Father Abraham, right? He's the father of the Jewish nation. You guys have probably sang the songs before. Father Abraham had many sons. Come on. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that's true. You are a a child of Abraham because he is the father of believers. But do you know what God... You guys sang that horribly, by the way. But you you, you know what God promised Abraham? He actually promised him not just that a nation would come from him, but listen to this. This is Genesis 17, 6. God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That's a promise to Abraham. Kings will come from you. That's a, God doesn't promise bad stuff. Seems like a great thing. Now, fast forward to the end of Genesis. God's chosen people are in Egypt. Remember that... Jacob had all these sons, and they sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, but then they have to come to Egypt. This is, I love this story because I'm a youngest child, and they, so the older brothers are like groveling. I'm like, yes, as a dream. So they come to Egypt, and he, you know, everything goes fine. But Jacob in his deathbed says this. This is the father of, of Joseph. He says, the scepter, this is Genesis 49.10, the scepter, that's a royal scepter, sign of kingship shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is a promise. Kingship's going to come through this family. Now, you just follow their history a little further, and 
in the early chapters of the next book, Exodus, God leads these enslaved Israelites out of slavery into what we think is going to be the promised land, but you remember they have to wander for quite some time. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, God actually promises a king once again. He tells them, when you come into the land that I've promised you and you conquer it, this is where the promise comes. He says, you're going to ask me for a king and I will appoint a king over you of my choosing. Incredibly positive. Now, if you follow the storyline just a little bit further, do you remember what happens after they come into the land and they conquer it and kind of clear it out a bit? Who rules over them? Is it a king? No, it's a bunch of judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's easily top five most depressing books in the Bible. It's a great book, but it's, it's really depressing because it's generation after generation of just a constant roller coaster. They come into the land, these judges rule, and occasionally you get like a really godly one, and you think, oh my gosh, things are going to go well. And then they have a son who's going to be the next judge, and that, that son's just out of control and doesn't follow the Lord, and so then the people veer back into idolatry and worship the gods of the peoples around them. And then eventually maybe there's another good judge, and it comes back. But all in all, the time of the judges is just a disaster. And then listen, though, in Judges 17.6, how the author of Judges describes the situation. It says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The problem was that there was no king to enforce and lead the people toward total fidelity, serving Yahweh with their whole hearts. So you look at all of this stuff and you think, boy, the king thing sounds really good. Sounds like a wonderful promise that's going to lead to phenomenal things for God's people. And then you enter from Judges right into 1 Samuel, the book that we're studying. And 1 Samuel opens by describing the ministry of really the last judge, a prophet who was also a judge named Samuel. And like some of the great judges before him, though very few, Samuel actually led Israel to a time of reform where they were worshiping and following Yahweh rather than idols. And it seemed like, wow, this is going really well. And then you enter 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to pick it up, 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. Don't worry, we'll get to the uh, unbalanced response in a moment. Verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. Hate to be the second one. You know, Joel... Nice. Abijah. Okay. Guess we're going the other direction with it. And it says, and they were judges in Beersheba. Now, verse 3, this is really important. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. 
they took bribes and perverted justice. The reason this is so important is it seems it's the same cycle again, right? Another, finally God raises up this judge, this prophet, who's wonderful and wholly devoted to the Lord, and you think, okay, great, but really what's going on is the same pattern. He has sons who don't love the Lord, don't follow the Lord, and it's judges repeating itself. There's no king in the land, and everyone's about to do, once again, what's right in their own eyes. And so the elders of Israel come to Samuel and seem to me to make, at face value, a very reasonable request. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Nice. Just like zero tact. Okay. Behold, you are old. I'm sure that's what we all just dream of hearing one day. Uh, Behold, you are old and your sons... Do not walk in your ways. So what the elders of Israel are perceiving is we're about to walk into that same pattern again. So they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, this seems like the request that's been promised. Deuteronomy 17 said, God, God said to them, you will ask for a king and I will appoint a king of your choosing like all the other nations. It seems like a perfectly reasonable response to the whole era of the judges. There's no king in the land and everyone's going buck wild. So they ask for a king and now what seems perfectly reasonable leads to tales of the unbalanced response. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Just as an aside, this is some good life wisdom. Samuel's ticked off. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't immediately talk to the people he's ticked off at. He talks to the Lord. Okay, this is just like free life wisdom that is not the main point of this passage. If you're mad, talk to Jesus first, and then the person you're mad at second. Okay. Let's actually keep rolling here. Seems, okay, why is Samuel upset? This seems like a perfectly reasonable request and at face value an unbalanced response. Well, fine, but then the Lord takes it a step further. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. If Samuel's response seems out of line with all of biblical history up to this point, the Lord's response seems outrageous. You promised that they would ask for this and you'd give it to them. Now they're asking for it and you're saying it's tantamount to treason. And he takes it even further. Verse 8, according to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Samuel's displeased, but the Lord says, no, this is way worse than you think. This isn't them just saying, like, Samuel, you're old and we don't want you to rule over us anymore. This is them saying, we don't want Yahweh. 
And it's just another it's just another move after other gods. What in the world is going on here? There's got to be something more than what immediately meets the eye because this is what they were promised. The king is a good thing. The king in, promised in Deuteronomy 17 was going to enforce Deuteronomy 12, which said you're going to have one Lord, Yahweh. This seems like tales of the unbalanced response. What is going on? What's going on? Well, the question, that question, what in the world is actually going on here, leads us into the first part of our big idea this morning. The first part of the big idea of this passage is simply that in light of biblical history and this response, the king is not the issue. The first part of our big idea this morning is that the king is not the issue. The king can't be the issue. The Lord doesn't promise things and then go, aha, I promised that you were going to ask for it and I would give it to you. Now you've asked for it. I'm furious. The king is obviously not the issue. So what's the issue? Well, we get a glimpse into what's really going on later in the chapter in verse 19. It says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us. And this is the critical part. And fight our battles. And fight our battles. They want to be there. The issue is not the king. The king is not the issue. The, the issue is why they're asking for a king. They're asking for a king who will fight their battles. But if there's anything that we've learned especially from all, is that to this point, but especially the Exodus, the greatest battle of the Old Testament, is that what makes Israel unique and different from all the nations is that it's the Lord who fights for them. It's the Lord who fights their battles. I mean, in the Exodus, you guys are probably familiar with the story of the Exodus either from reading your Bible or from a couple terrible movies, but... In the Exodus, you have finally this wicked Pharaoh letting these enslaved Israelites go. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, and then suddenly Pharaoh changes his mind. And now the greatest superpower on the planet is bearing down on these fleeing slaves. And they seem like they're in an impossible situation. Pharaoh and his army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. But listen to what Moses tells them in Exodus 14. He says, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. A king is not the issue. The issue is why they wanted a king. They wanted a king to fight their battles, but it was what makes Israel unique is Yahweh fights for them. I mean, that day he delivered them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And after they step to the other side of the sea, Moses sings a song, which honestly, is the, singing songs is the only thing that makes sense after you've been saved. That's why we do it together every Sunday, to refresh our hearts around the reality of God's saving love. But Moses sings this. He says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The Lord will reign forever and ever. What is going on in 1 Samuel 8 when they ask for a king who will fight their battles? When Israel requests a king to fight for them, their request expresses nothing less than their intent to switch their reliance and allegiance from a divine to a human king. Their request for a king to rule over them and fight their battles, it expresses nothing less than their intent to shift their reliance and allegiance from a divine king to a human one. The king is not the issue. The big idea from this passage, the king is not the issue, allegiance is. The king is not the issue. Allegiance is. It's not tales of the unbalanced response. It's a totally reasonable response to treason. To saying, no, we'll not follow you. We'd rather follow some dude named Saul just because he's pretty tall. Mistake, for sure. Not just because he's tall. And it's really this point in 1 Samuel 8 where you realize that as you're reading this passage, this passage starts to read you. Because what Samuel and the Lord are so up in arms about is the universal temptation we all face, and this is what it is, to seek horizontally what we've already been promised vertically. What's going on here, as you kind of step back and say, what does this passage have to do with me? This passage indicts the temptation that we all face and fall into, which is to seek horizontally from people, careers, money, looks, children, spouses. We seek from them what we've already been promised vertically from the Lord. That's what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The the king is not the issue. Allegiance is. They want to take some incomplete joy of this world and wrap their whole lives around it. And the only way you can properly describe that sort of thing is worship. 
they're going to worship a king rather than the king. And the reality is, as strange as some of this seems because we're so culturally removed, something we do constantly, or at least tempted to do, to look to created things, to look horizontally for deliverance, for meaning, for purpose, for ultimate satisfaction, to look horizontally for what we've already been promised vertically. It's a universal temptation that 1 Samuel 8 gets at. And really, if you fast forward just a couple chapters, you really get the heart of what's going on. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 12, if you want to just thumb forward for a second, what you'll see is Israel is, about to, is going to repent for doing this. They're pretty freaked out that they're going to receive some judgment from the Lord for what they've done. And Samuel's words to them really get at what's happening here. This trading of allegiance. 1 Samuel 12, excuse me, verses 20 to 21. says, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now, look at this part. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. What's so extraordinary about that is Samuel's talking about a good thing. When he says, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver you, you know what he's talking about? A king. A good thing that God has made to be enjoyed. What's amazing in this passage is that he's not talking about things that are bad in and of themselves when he talks about empty things worthless things. No, what's going on in 1 Samuel 8 and here in 1 Samuel 12 is the reality that whenever you take a good thing that God has made and you make it a requirement for your absolute happiness, whenever you take a good thing that God has made and said, you will fight my battles for me. You will make me okay. You will give me an identity. You will fulfill me. If I have you, then everything will be okay. When you say that about something, even when it's a good thing, you make it empty and worthless for you. The king was a good thing. But to turn aside to it as though it's God, that makes it worthless and empty. You put a weight on a created thing it was never meant to bear and you crush it. So I think the question for all of us, if we're going to look at this passage honestly, is what are you asking to fight your battles and make you secure that is not the Lord? What thing that is not the Lord are you looking to and say, I need you to fight my battles. Without you, I won't be secure. Another way of asking the question is what good thing are you making an absolute requirement for happiness and therefore making into an empty thing? What are you asking to fight your battles that is not the Lord? Is it a marriage? 
Boys, as long as this marriage is firing on all cylinders, then I'll be okay. It's an absolute requirement for happiness. Is it children? As long as my children follow Jesus and are healthy, then you know, I'm secure, I'm happy. Is it a career? As soon as I can just get this stable job, pay off some of this debt, you know, then as soon as I can accomplish this thing, climb one more rung on the ladder. Or maybe it's just the discontentment of not having any of the things I just described. Money, physical beauty, bank accounts, you know, these things, most of them are wonderful gifts and they function wonderfully as gifts. They're just terrible gods. What are you looking at and saying, fight my battles for me? Make me okay. Make me secure. You know, I'll just level with you and be honest. I've done this with almost every good thing in my life. And I still face the temptation to. Planting a church is a good thing. But like laying your hopes on it and saying, fight my battles for me, ministry success, that will leave you empty. I don't know how many times I've said in watching other pastors, well, as long as I have a good marriage, like these guys, their churches, they they grow or they don't or whatever, but they neglect their wives. And I'll just say to myself, well, as long as I have a good marriage, then I'll be okay. And then you know what I'm doing? Taking a good thing, making it an empty, worthless thing. I'm making it an absolute requirement for my happiness. And so, oh my gosh, Andrea and I had a fight. I better go to pieces and question everything about myself. Oh my gosh, my son is not walking as early as other people's sons. Or fill in what other ridiculousness that we do. It's because I'm asking, Soren, fight my battles for me. Be the athlete I never was. Be the whatever I never was. What are you looking to that is not the Lord and saying, fight my battles for me? I want to encourage you that that thing is probably a good thing to be enjoyed. So enjoy it. But don't wrap your life around it. Now, I cannot end with that question. I cannot end with the question, what are you looking to to fight your battles? Because that's not a question of hope. Christians, that question only gets us part of the way. But as Christians, we have to end with hope. And I'll tell you what, Samuel ends with hope. Take a look at the verse we just looked at again, 1 Samuel 12, verse 20 and 21. And then we'll look at the very next verse, and that's where we'll, we'll finish. It says, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Now, whenever someone tells me to do something, I almost always ask why. Check this out. Samuel's about to tell them why, and it's the most beautifully hopeful thing you could imagine. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Notice what, he, what Samuel did there. He said, I want you to put your idols away. 
by serving the Lord with all your heart. So there's just some practical wisdom. Like if you struggle with like, oh man, my career seems to be an empty thing or my marriage or whatever, don't try to love your spouse less. Just seek to love the Lord more. Everything else will kind of find its way. But it's kind of futile to be like, gosh, I kind of idolize Andrea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to be a little ruder to her. You know, and that, no, it doesn't work that way. Oh, I'm going to not work so hard at work. That's not the path. The path is to devote yourself wholly to the Lord and love him with all your heart. It's a positive, not a negative. But did you notice the motivation that Samuel gave? He said, you can do this because the Lord will never forsake you. He's made promises to you. You're his covenant people. He loves you. What does a Jesus storybook Bible say? He loves you with this kind of never-ending, always and forever love. What that means is if you're in this room and you're struggling with an idol right now, struggling with a good thing that you're making a God thing, which makes it a worthless thing, the Lord is not saying, fix that and then we'll be good. He's not waiting for you to fight that battle on your own so that he can love you. Quite the opposite. The only reason you can fight is because God loves, forgives, and saves people who struggle with idols. Romans 5.8 paints the picture. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet a people grappling to put our life in its proper order, Christ loves us and forgives us. So if you're struggling with getting this battle right, just know this battle is going to continue forever and the Lord is not waiting for you to get it right to love you. He loves you in that while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. And it's for that and only that reason that we can, with hope, seek to put our idols away and love the Lord with all our heart. The king is not the issue. Allegiance is. In light of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, let's give all of our allegiance to him, seeking first his kingdom and letting what will be added be added.